Hey, thanks for joining us. This is episode number 10 of the Insignificant Others podcast. Rob and I had a special treat a couple days ago. We took the show on the road to Fort Worth and had a great time with Gary Randall. So Gary's a very inspiring person. First off, he's 6'8". He's hard to miss. He played basketball for TCU. Second, the strength of his faith is awe-inspiring. Gary Randall and Noble Crawford started Hope Farm in Fort Worth in 1990. Hope stands for Helping Other People Excel, and they're doing some great work. Hope Farm is a leadership program guiding at-risk boys to become Christ-centered men of integrity. I really enjoyed our visit with Gary, Rob. I did too, Brett. Um, It's been one of my favorite podcasts to date. We've had a lot of great guests on the show. Gary and the work that he and Noble have done over the years, helping um, these young African-American boys, providing them with a father figure, giving them some structure, is really inspiring. Yeah, one of the uh, stats he pointed out, uh, speaking of father figures, about somewhere between 70 to 80% of all African-American children are born into single-family home, or single-parent families. So there's no dad present. And they're kind of serving as that dad and providing accountability and love. The way he talks about hugging them and telling them he loves them, it's, it's really inspiring. Yeah, and, and if people just go to the website at www.hopefarmfw.org, there's a video on, on the website, and you can see firsthand just how deeply Gary and Noble touch these boys' lives. And, um, you know, one thing... Um, that we want to mention before we segue into uh, our conversation with Gary is that Gary did go back to TCU and, and he got his degree, which is which is great. Um, and we also failed to ask him about his uh, his own daughter, who uh, graduated from Stanford and has made contributions to Hope Farm as well. So he's a, a great example inside and outside of of Hope Farm, and and. We certainly encourage anybody in our listening audience who's touched by what Gary and, and Noble are doing at Hope Farm to donate, donate money or their time. Um, they certainly can use whatever help and support and certainly prayer that they can get. So with that, I said we kick it on to Gary. All right. Here's Gary Randall. All right, so we are in uh, South, I guess, Southeast Fort Worth with uh, Gary Randall, co-founder of Hope Farm. And uh, the the thing that really gets me is, so we're sitting in a classroom at these desks, and and Gary, you've got your six feet eight inches crammed into this desk, which is a feat in and of itself. That that is a, a difficult act, you know, for me to um, get all of me into the little space here. <laughs> So, you know, being 6'8", uh, basketball was a big part of growing up. Tell us, you, you played for TCU. Tell us what that was like. Correct, I am. Um, I, I, I played basketball all my life. You know, I came from a, a very athletic family. My, um, my oldest brother played for the Seattle Supersonics. In fact, he um, scored his career high against 49 points against Bill Russell. And That's 49 impressive. points against Walt Chamberlain. He was an incredible player. He was 6'9", left-handed post. He was a handful. But the person that was most 
influential in my basketball career was my sister. I have two sisters that are 6'3". Wow. And my younger sister, and she's just five years older than me, um, we used to play basketball in the backyard. And she would not let me post her. (laughs) When I would try a post move, I would turn around, and guess what she would do? She would block my shot. She she gave me what was called a spalding. The name of the basketball was being printed <laughs> on my forehead. And so she was incredible. But I, um, I um, played my um, college basketball at Texas Christian University, and I came to Texas Christian University back in 1975. And and Texas was still a little different, you know? Yeah, because you grew up not in Texas, right? I grew up in Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, when I told my family and friends I was going to go to um, school in Texas, they looked at me and said, why? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, uh, I, I, I played um, my college basketball at Texas Christian University. And I... Um, when I came here, um, the coach wasn't ready for my type of player. Uh, the coach told me that a man 6'8 should not dribble the basketball. And he placed me in the hole. And I said, Coach, I, I, I can't play in the hell. I never learned to play basketball in the hole. But he said, that's where I need you. And so I went down to the hole. And um, I broke my hand. My um, my junior year here, and um, I told the coach, you know, I, can I redshirt? He said, No, I need you to play. So I played with a broken hand, and um, we um, my senior year, we were poor at best. You know, I in fact I viewed us, we were on tricycles in the Southwest Conference, and everybody else was on motorcycles. Yeah. And um, and we, a preseason game, we played the University of Kentucky. That was the year that they won everything. They had this incredible team, and they played us, and they beat us like we stole the government mule. They <laughs> stomped us. And so our coach was looking for someone to um, to vent on, and he vented on me. And I was a high-strung kid from California, and I didn't take it. So I had a few choice words for him. He had a few choice words for me. And I left the team. And I I thought that I didn't need to have a degree from Texas Christian University. So I um, kind of set off on my own, and I and I did what was what I was good at. And one of the things that I was good at was forming relationships with, with, with ladies. And so um, I um, that led to nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, that led to nowhere. And, um, and then... So did you leave the school at that time or just leave the team? I left the school. Left the school? I just left the school. I, I, I didn't feel that um, school was important. Mm-hmm. And I felt that... Um, I could do okay by myself, and I um, didn't understand all the obstacles that I was going to have to face. And, and one of the things that um, would close doors 
is not having a college degree. Right. Did right. you did you go back to California, back home? <clears throat> I I um I stayed here for a a short time, and I um then I went back to California, but I I went back to Northern California. I went back to San Francisco, and I I tried to find a job in San Francisco, and um and that was during the time that San Francisco was a really hot city, and there were jobs were few. And almost as few as parking space were in San Francisco, and and so I um, left San Francisco without a job, and I went back to Southern California, and I went back to Southern California, and I um, found a job with um, with um, Tarrant, not not Tarrant County, but with the um, well, it was it was. Um, Department of Public Service in, in California, and I worked at this place called McLaren Hall, and it was a juvenile facility, and they worked with um, kids who were basically um, had run away, and so we're dealing with kids from all over California. They they brought them to McLaren Hall, and that's where I first got a taste of working with kids. And okay, so so I've got a question for you on that. Did that just happen? Of that was the job that was available or was that something that you were pursuing? Um, it was um, something that I was pursuing. Okay. It's, you know, it, it was a good job and, and, and that was something that I was good at and working with kids. And so I pursued it and I got it and I, um, and I, and I did it for a while, but it was a, a victim of a proposition in California. California was famous for propositions that they would come in and cut stuff and stuff would disappear. Right. And so that job disappeared. And so I, um, you know, started working in other places. I worked at this place called Dignity Center. And then I, you know, I started, you know, taking stock of my life and, and I wasn't going anywhere. And so I, um, I, um, decided that I was going to establish a meaningful relationship with a, a girl that I dated and I dated her in California in, here in Texas. And and she was an exceptional lady that during the time that I was dating her, she never referred to me by my nickname. And my nickname was Hollywood. <laughs> That's a good nickname. Yeah, a kid from California. So the kids that at Texas Christian, they called me Hollywood. And um, I, I bet there are about 300 Hollywoods. Anybody that came from California <laughs> to a Texas school was called Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah. And, and so, so she never saw Hollywood in me. She saw something that was deeper and, and something that was more significant. And so she never called me Hollywood. And, um, and so when I evaluated, um, girls that I wanted to have a meaningful relationship, and I had my, um, you know, my father tell me that he felt that she was a good girl to be my wife, and and my father was really significant in my life. He was like my best friend, and so I took stock of that, and I I asked her to marry me, and um, we were. Living in LA, and it was this time of the year around March, you know, April and March, and March Madness was going on, and 
she was getting ready for church. And, um, and so she came out and, and she says, sweetie, I, I want to go to church as a family. And I said, yeah, yeah, we will, but not today, you know? <laughs> and so she went back into the room and she changed clothes. She put on a t-shirt and a pair of sweatpants and she sat in my lap and she says, Gary, I, I, I want us to go to church as a family. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was okay for me to go to hell, but I didn't want Maryland to go to hell. And so, so I started thinking about going to church. Notice I said thinking, not, yeah. not going, yeah, go just, just yeah. thinking yeah. about it. And she was working a, a job for a travel agency in, in Los Angeles. And, and, and she was working a cruise trip for one of the largest African-American churches in the city. It was, a, uh, it was Crenshaw Christian Center. And the administrator came, and she invited me to go to church. I was like, mm, no, thank you. And then she came back, and she invited me to a concert. And I was thinking, a concert? How tough could that be? So I said, cool, I'll go to the concert. And um, this guy got up and he sang beautifully. And I was content until a little bit short preacher. And, you know, my wife tells me everybody's short to me. But it was <laughs> a little really short preacher got up and he gave a message that if you reject Christ, you choose hell. And I was like, huh. And he gave an invitation. And people were responding. And I, first time I got a, a feeling in my heart to maybe go down. But I didn't want anybody to see that I needed anything. Yeah. And I didn't go. And I, um, when I left the function going back home, I looked over at Marilyn, who was then my wife. I looked at my wife and I told her, I said, if that's ever offered to me again, I'm going to get some. And just so happened... I was working in Hollywood, and we were working late that night, and I got off work maybe around about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I pulled up to Hollywood Boulevard and Vine. And if anyone knows anything about Hollywood Boulevard and Vine, it was full of night people. Mm-hmm. And there were pimps, prostitutes, transvestites, you, you name it, they were on the streets. And I... um. And I looked over at them, and I said, wow, there's no difference between them and me. If we both die, we're going to hell. And right there, I um, drove up to the intersection, a sinner, and I asked Christ in my life, and I drove out the intersection as a saint. Wow. And I went home, and I told my wife, I woke her up, and I said, Marilyn, I'm a Christian now. And she's like, huh? And and she kind of just looked at me uh, through her sleep. And um, the first person that I witnessed to was my dad. My dad was 50 years old when I was born. Mm -hmm. And I was a testimony to his manhood. And we were close. And my mother said about my dad, 
My dad was content to go to hell as long as he knew that I was going to be there. And after he found out that I wasn't going to be there, he asked the Lord into his life. Wow. Yeah, and it was it was amazing. It was amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. And then so I um that's a great story. So Hollywood and Vine, you know, so Hollywood clearly has big meaning for Gary Hollywood Randall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's an important point. So how did your life change after that, though? I mean, that's a significant moment for you. It made a big impact. What happened with your life after that? You know, what happened was, um, you know, I, I had friends, and friends knew me. They knew that I was the type of person that you got all of me or you got none of me. And so they saw that I was a Christian, and they disappeared. And, and, and I don't deal well with rejection. And so I was kind of sad. And, and, and someone told me that they weren't rejecting me, but they were rejecting the God that was in my life. And so, you know, about six months later, my best friend came back to me and he looked at me and he said, Gary, I want what you have. And so I had a chance to lead him to the Lord. Wow. And, um, and, and just so what happened was I'm a people person. And so I started um, surrounding myself with people and, um, and just meeting people. And I, and I, I, I never push my um, conviction on people. I would just, that's what I believe. Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and I was more than willing to share the change that went on in my life. And, and so, you know, <clears throat> I, was, um, I felt called to come back to Texas. I, I had no idea why. And I went back. I, so me and my wife got in our 280Z, everything we had, and we came back to Texas. And I um, was looking for a job, and and I was looking for social service. And I, I went down to a job fair at, at the city hall in Fort Worth, and I saw that the social service field didn't pay very much money. Mm-hmm. But there was a police recruiter that was there, and he said, hey, big fella, would you like to be a policeman? I said, mm, let me think about it. Let, you know, let me fill out an application. I fill out an application. And they processed me, and I was a Fort Worth policeman less than a couple of weeks. Huh. And so... In how many years were you a cop? I was a cop for 15 years. 15 years. 15 wow. years. And, and as a cop, you know, I, I thought to myself, I said, well, God, maybe this is what you want me to do. You want me to be your witness in, in, in blue. And so that's what I was. And um and and then alien people weren't um very they were reluctant to come to me, but they came to me when there was a a, a, a tense situation where they had a test coming up. They would then they would look find me out and say, Gary, and they would kind of just say it quietly, Will you pray for me? <laughs> right. <laughs> and and I would. And and so I um I completed the academy, which was pretty rigorous, uh, academically and physically. 
I completed the academy, and I was on the streets. And I, um, I saw a car go off the bridge on Beach and Lancaster, and the car went straight off the bridge down to the next street. And to my haste to get down to where the car was, I hang from a side of an embankment. Actually, I hung from the side of the embankment, and I dropped. And I landed on a 45-degree angle, and my kneecap exploded. Ooh. And I was laying on the ground, and I, um, I said to myself, you hurt, and you hurt real bad. And so um, my partner came around, and he caught the guy, and the guy that was in the car was drunk. And they called a, uh, the emergency vehicles, and they came and got me, and um, I, I was in excruciating pain, and they took me in. Immediately, they performed surgery on my knee. And so I was light duty as a policeman, and, um, and so my options were limited. And so I um, decided that the thing that would be best for me to do is medically retire. But before I medically retired, I had the extreme um, fortune to become a juvenile investigator. And, and that's where I saw firsthand the high volume of minority children going into the criminal justice system. But, you know, I couldn't see the forest for the trees. And had, I, had you met Noble by this point? No. Okay. No. And I, I couldn't see the forest for the trees. And um, um, I... Um, as a cop, at, at our church, I, I, I attended a church in Dallas, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. And um, Bill Glass came to our church, and they extended an invitation for African-American men to go into the prison. But African-American men, they spend all their life trying to stay out the prison. They, they don't want to go to the prison. <laughs> and so I signed up, and it was an emotional um, action. When I signed up, I um, was ripping, roaring, ready to go to the prison. And I, the day came, and I got on the bus, and it just dawned on me that maybe someone in prison might recognize me as a policeman, and there would be some drama in the yard. In fact, I started to get off the, the bus and call my wife and tell her to come get me, but I felt that God wanted me to to go on that prison visit. And so we went to the prison, and then we got up to the prison, and we saw the, the three cyclone fences with razor wire on it and the enormity of the prison walls. And then the, we walked in, and I'll never forget the sound of the prison gate closing behind me. Mm. And I started interfacing with guys and just hanging out because I, I, I love people, and I was just hanging out. And I looked and I saw that just about everybody was African-American. And I later found out that the prisons were 80% African-American. And I thought that we're just 12% of the population. There's something wrong. There is a dead monkey on the lion's back. Mm -hmm. And so I finished my visit for that day. And the guys put up in the bus, and they said that the ladies have prepared food for you. And I thought, 
food I couldn't even eat. I went back to my hotel room, and I fell on my knees, and I started weeping before the Lord and said, Lord, I'm available. Use me in the prison. Use me out of the prison. Whatever you want, I'm available. And, and the Lord made it clear to me that he didn't want me to be in the prison. What he wanted me to do was to keep guys out of the prison. So thus started Whole Farm. You know, I met with um, Mr. Crawford. There was a, a, an incident at our church that required all the policemen to come together, and that's where I met Noble. And we were church security. And we were talking in the back of the church about our passion and what we felt God wanted us to do. And, uh, and we talked about helping boys. And, uh, and, and just for our listeners, so Noble Crawford and you co-founded Hope mm-hmm. Farms. And we got to speak with Noble prior to recording this. And uh, his story was very similar to yours of, of the meaningful. He, he would see, you know, in, in the jails, he would just see all of these young black faces and say, there, there's something wrong here. Right. And so when did the idea for Hope Farm really get generated in y'all's minds? Um, I, I think it, it really was generated way back when I was working at McLaren Hall in Southern California. That far back, mind, yeah. In my mind, you know, it was a facility for kids. And I... Um, and, you know, and one of the things I've learned, that God doesn't waste anything. He used my experience that I had, even when I was a non-believer, he used it and is using it right now to, to bring Hope Farm about. And, and so what we started, we were going to have a, a program for kids that we were raised in the rural East Texas and so we went to East Texas. Take them out of the inner city, get them out in the country, take away from the influence, yep. And that was our plan. But that wasn't God's plan because the heavens were made out of arm. Nothing happened until we made the adjustment in our location. We didn't make a, an adjustment in our vision. We just made an adjustment in our location. And we came to the inner city. And when we came to the inner city, Heavens cracked open and, and all kind of things happened. And, you know, we got funded um, back in back in 1980, you know, 90, no, excuse me. We got funded in like in 91, 92. Right. And, and that was unheard of for an African-American organization to get the money that we needed to start our, our program. And so we started up. And who was it that originally funded you guys? Um, Sid Richardson Foundation. Sid, Sid Richardson Foundation. And they gave us the money. Great Fort Worth family. Yeah, yeah. Just incredible Fort Worth family. And, um, and um, I, I told the executive director that I would give him the money back before we misspend it because we couldn't find a place. And so we kept looking, kept looking. And God brought us right here to the inner city. And we're right here on the, on the main thoroughfare in the inner city of Fort Worth. So, and, and to describe the campus that we're at right now, this is, so you've got, what, about eight to ten buildings here? Right? Well, well, yeah, we have, um, we have um, um, uh, administration building. We have uh, um, the older building with the, the crack house that we bought when we first came. 
that we added 500 square feet to, we have that and we turn that into a, a mom's resource center. And then we also have an, another administration building and we have a, um, and we're in the, the, the administration building at Whole Farm. And then we have a family life center that is on the west side mm-hmm. of the campus where our older boys um, go for their remediation and their, their help for help them academically and, and some athletic activity. So you, you were incorporated in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, you were looking for the, the right location. You, you, you found this location after searching in East right. Texas. Um, how long or how many years was it that then you found this place and you really opened the doors? It was, um, we opened the doors in 96. Okay. So about five, five or six years had five, passed. Six years, yep. Of, so what was that? I mean, was that? I mean, because to have a uh, a dream mm-hmm. um, inspired by God, and, mm-hmm. and you felt compelled mm-hmm. um, to take this path, was that a challenging time? Did you think that this thing would would never open its doors the way that you wanted it to, or did you just leave your faith in God that that everything would take care of itself and that day would come? You know, I was the type of person that I. I believe in praying to God like he does everything and, and, and work like you do everything. And so what I was busy um, establishing relationships, um, trying to find the correct location. And so I was just, you know, you know, when I was on my off days and on my days, Days that I, I came to work early, I would spend my afternoons looking or I'd spend my morning looking. And, and then at the same time, I was going to the elementary school and, and mentoring kids in the elementary yeah. school and, and establishing relationships with principals and teachers. In fact, at the, the elementary school right down the street, I had to stop going because I became such a, a a big distraction. Kids would be in the classroom and they would see me and they would say "giant," and they would run out of the classroom <laughs> and just grab my leg. And you know, and so it's you know I, I didn't want to be uh, a disturbance. So I, I I you know I go every now and then, but I don't go as often as I used to. So to to, to level set for our listening audience, um, Hope Farm takes in. Uh, young African American boys, age five, about right, right, and 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 you um, care for these boys up until the twelfth grade. Yes. Okay. Correct. And how many how many boys are here? Um, we now? In, in in both facilities here and in Como, we have sixty five boys. Sixty five boys. And and these are boys who come from single parent homes, boys who don't have fathers in their life. Their fathers have either been murdered incarcerated or abandoned. And we teach boys at the age of five because we learn that it's easier to prepare than it is to repair. So Mm -hmm. we try to get them while they're still malleable and still soft and they still want to be led. And what is is the application process, if you will? There's a a mother, for example, (laughs) that has heard of Hope Farm and she would like her son to have an opportunity to come here, what what does somebody have to do? To the, the application process consists of, of a mother calling and and trying to find out what it takes to get her son here. And, you know, and what Miss Jewel will do is she will set up an interview with the moms because we're looking for moms 
that want more for themselves because we learn that it's impossible for a mom to want more for her son if she doesn't want more for herself. Interesting, yeah. And so, you know, and so the thing that starts the whole process in motion is that the mom would take the initiative to call and find out what it's going to take to get her son into Hope Farm. And so, and, and that's what I'm looking for, is the initiative. And that shows me that there is a concern that a mom who wants more for herself. So tell us a little bit about the curriculum at Hope Farm, because it's not a full school. No, actually, we call it a second school. Um, the boys come in, and one of the things that they do Every day, every boy here, when they start Hope Farm, they get an accountability folder. It's a folder that they take to the school where the teacher documents their um, academic behavior. It, it, it documents their social behavior. And in, in the school system, they have a grading system that's E for excellent, S for satisfactory, and for not satisfactory. And the only grade that I want is an E. Right. And, and it's amazing. These boys who come here who aren't used to accountability, who aren't used to structure, they thrive in this environment because I tell you guys, everybody needs accountability. Everybody needs structure. Everybody needs to be able to touch the walls because there's safety in the walls. Right. So they go to their school, then come here? Mm -hmm. They come here every day. And, and, and this is not daycare. This is a leadership program that the boys come to and they participate every day. Like I said, they come here and it's a second school. And what we do is we give them things that they should get in public school that they aren't getting. Mm -hmm. And then we also have a... a um, a, a program that helps them with their social needs, and, and, and we use dinner to teach them social skills. We teach them dining etiquette, table conversation, table bearing, and then attached to our dinner is a speech program, a speech um, or a professional speaking program where the boys speak professionally. They stand up and they give speeches. And then we also have a Bible study component, which is the core of everything that we do, because we know that change is not external, change is internal. And, the, and there's no change until your heart changes. If you change, the only medium that we found that changes the heart is Jesus Christ. And so when you have a heart change, then you have behavior change. Do, do you have um, tutors here to help yes, we do. the boys with their school We have work academic and coordinators, and we have volunteers that come in to help. And, and, um, and these guys are committed to these boys. Wow. Yeah. And, then, and then I saw you've got some basketball courts outside. And basketball then, courts so outside. There's, there's, there's um, a physical fitness component as well. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. You know. I, I believe that a kid should play. Yeah. You know, and so that's part of that's part of the program. And then also, there's consequences. If you don't bring me, uh, you bring me an in, then you got to write. Yeah, that there needs to be um, some attitude and behavioral adjustments, and it's all about changing your behavior. Yeah. So, how long do the boys stay here? Uh, 
at Hope Farm after school. Okay. Our young boys stay until around about 3.15 until 6 o'clock. And our older boys get here around close to 4, mm-hmm. and they stay until 7. That's fantastic. Is there, is there, I mean, are they required to help with upkeep and, yes. you know, you know, let's say yeah, outside? This, this you know, it's inside. important to me to help the boys understand that this is theirs. And so there is a requirement, you know. I, I don't, picking up paper and, and you know, and doing things that, that are necessary to, to maintain whole farm. And, you know, even after dinner, the boys sweep and clean up, and they, they take the plates into the kitchen coordinator. And, and it's all, all these things are based on teaching these boys life skills. So, you know, the, the great thing about this is that, that you and Noble and the other uh, the, the people on staff here are giving such great role models to these kids. I've heard the statistic multiple times about the number of African-American children born into single-parent families, and it's... Around 70%. Yeah, it's 80, closer to 80. It is extremely scary, especially when the majority of those don't have a male role model. And what you guys are providing them here is is really valuable because it's to me it's it's less about putting a Band-Aid on it and fixing just this one problem. It's fixing, you hope, this systemic problem that these young boys become up to be men that, to you become know, role models. Exactly. What we do is we break the break the cycle, and you know, and we let, and we know that it it starts with them. So we can't do anything about what their dad did, but we can do a lot about what they do. Yeah. And we start preparing them and start modeling and demonstrating. You know, guys, uh, I um, I I meet with groups of people, and I and I share with them about whole farm like I'm doing with you guys. I ask them. Have they ever put together a model car? And they look at me, and some people raise up their hand. I say, okay, um, could you tell me what the most important thing in that package? And they look at me, and they say, um, are the pieces? I say, okay. They say, glue? I say, okay. And so they say, the instructions. I said, Right. See, those things are important, but they're not the most important. The most important thing that's in that package is the picture that is on the box. The picture shows you what the the car looks like when it's completed correctly. And so that's where we are with the picture on the box. Now, how many boys um, who matriculate uh, to Hope Farm um, do you lose because either they're not buying into the message that they're they're you know being given, or let's say there's some challenges at home or both. Um, how many do you lose? You know, I you know I, I would say um, the boys who make it all the way through Whole Farm is is pretty high. It's probably pretty close to eighty percent. Wow, we lose about twenty. You know, and we lose those twenty for some reasons you know you know some boys will ask their mother or actually tell their mother they don't want to go to the whole farm and the mom will take the boy out of the whole farm and that's that's very 
heartrending to us because we know that the kid, when they say they don't need to be here, that's when they need to be here the most. Yeah. Right. And, and what happens is if instructions say bake for two hours and you just bake for 30 minutes, yeah. what you take out is going to be a mess. Is there a particular age, one age, where it's, I would say you, it's the danger zone? Where, you know, let's say, because Brett and I have two 13-year-old boys. Yes. And, and, and we're in the danger zone. You're in the danger zone. <laughs> and yeah. so, but is there, is there a particular it age usually, where it you get starts more happening. nervous and you maybe become, you know, more aware of what's going on in their life than any other age? Yeah, yeah you know, it usually starts around like a 11, 11, you know, like middle school. 11 and 12 and 13, you know, 11 and 12 and 13, you become stupid and they become smart. <laughs> they, you have you know, no idea yeah. how we identify yeah. with yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you don't have any sense. And, and, and they think that they know what's best for them, but they don't have any idea. And, and, and what they lose, the, the benefit of interfacing with men who have already been there and men who can tell them, say, man, that's not wise to do that. And so it's important that that's where the mother comes in. That's why we develop the moms because we have to model and develop the moms because a lot of the moms didn't have fathers themselves. Right. And so they don't know. Mm-hmm. And so we start developing the moms so simultaneously with the boys so that the moms, when the boys reach a certain age where they're starting to kick back, the moms will say, you know what, I, you, you may not want to go to Whole Farm, but you're still going. Yeah. And it's amazing. And usually what happens around 10th grade, these boys begin to understand the benefit of Whole Farm. Yeah. And they see that we have um, a college um, path already prepared for them to jump right into. And that's great that you brought that up because um, when I first heard you speak a couple of weeks ago, I believe you mentioned that there there are monies that have uh, been you know allocated or set aside right. for young men who right. make it through the you know twelfth grade in high Absolutely. school and then go on to college. Right. So there, there's that that carrot. You know, that's kind exactly. of dangling in front of them. Exactly. And they have that opportunity. And, and you know, and, and that's from instruction. If, you know, what happens is a boy has to be able to receive that instruction. And they have to get past to that, I, I think, I, I call it the stupid age, mm-hmm. where, you know, 13, 14, they, they're just stupid, you know? You know, at 13 or 14, I was stupid. Yeah. 13 or 14, yeah. you were stupid. Yes. yes. And, and so they get past that age and they begin to understand that, hey, you know what? You know, I learned that my dad wasn't the stupid as I thought he was, mm-hmm. you know? In fact, my dad began to make a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. And so that's what happens with these boys and these boys who don't have fathers. They, it takes time for them to understand and, and learn to trust us. So, so you've got about 60 boys in your program now. Mm-hmm. How many can you handle? I mean, if you had twice as many come in, can you handle that many? Yeah, you know, we could handle more. But, you know, one of the things that we, we have a program in Como that we, we're just about to build a, a facility for. And then we, we want to expand. We want to go to other places and open up Hope Farm because we feel that the, this concept that we have and this model is duplicatable. We feel that what we do 
can be done in cities all over the United yeah. States. So, so my question was more of all the families that live within a certain radius of, of your campuses. Why wouldn't all the moms be just clawing and begging to get their boys in? What's the objection that you get from some of the moms for, for not wanting their boys to you come know, some of the moms are, aren't willing to um, venture out. Some of the moms have been injured by men. You know, yeah. one of the things that just dawned on me, and my daughter helped me to, to understand this. She sat across from me, and she looked at me, and she says, Dad, you can't even begin to understand what some of these moms have gone through. And, and, and some of the things are the majority of the things that they have gone through have been by hand of a man. So they don't trust men. And you telling them to trust you? Yeah. And so, so what happens is we have to build trust. And one of the things that we did is we brought in a female to be a liaison for our moms. And she's our mom's resource coordinator. And, you know, one of the things that we've learned that she speaks the language. She speaks women. You know, <laughs> we don't. We you, don't. Hollywood never cracked that. No, okay. no that's, okay. that's one thing that I never had been accomplished at. We, we need a translator on our <laughs> yeah. Is there an app for that? Yes. Hey, let me ask you a question. Do you speak women? No. Oh, my gosh, no. no, no, no. <laughs> it's a language that we just don't understand. Yeah. Yes. And, and so what happens is we have a, um, a mom's resource coordinator who has raised her children, have been successful in raising her children. And so what she acts as a liaison between the moms and us. That's great. And it's just incredible. So uh, I, I had uh, the privilege of hearing uh, uh, that young man uh, speak mm-hmm. um, who was taking photographs at the mm-hmm. event that mm-hmm. I met you at. Um, and he was here at Hope Farm, and he went five years. Five, he started he at five. Grad, oh, he started at five. Yes. And he, he graduated from high school, college. went on to college, mm-hmm. um, and now he is working here, He's now which, is a, which was a, was a, amazing to hear, and that, I'm sure that makes you uh, very proud. Yes. Um, tell us some of the other success stories. I mean, if, or, you know, I'm sure you've got numerous. I yes. don't want you to leave anybody out, yeah. but just give us a couple that, that really. You know, I, I have one son that um, he was the, the first kid who went all the way through Whole Farm. And um, he now is um, married and he's an associate pastor in Atlanta. I have one son. And the son that's a pastor in Atlanta. And, and you refer to all the boys as your sons. Yeah, they're my sons. That's they're wonderful. Sons. And, you know, one of the things that I do with every one of my sons is I let them know that I love them. And some of these boys have never had a man say to them that they love them. Mm-hmm. That's so important for no, boys. so important just to, to be affirmed. Yeah. You know, I, I tell the boys, you know, I love you. I may not like your behavior, but I love you. And so I have a, 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 another son who, um, um, whose mom took him out of the program um, right when he was at, at the stupid age, took him out of the program right when he was like 12. And um, unfortunately, he's spending 20 years in, incarcerated. And he had a chance to tell us that, you know, he regrets the fact that his mom listened to him. And the mom tells us that she regrets the fact that she took her son out. But this kid, um, um, we 
were allowed to place seeds in his life. And so this kid is saying that he's going to be God's witness in prison. Mm-hmm. So you never, ever know where those seeds are going to germinate. And you never, ever know um, whose life is going to be changed. And there's been, there's been hundreds of boys who've been through here. And there's been some boys who haven't gone all the way through. But, you know, we get a chance to plant seeds in their lives. And and that and that once you plant seeds, it's no longer your responsibility; it's God's responsibility. Let me ask you a question. This is related. I don't. I don't want to take too much of a diversion path here, but I think that for those folks who um, don't work with children um, in the manner that you've done, and certainly the folks here have done, um, and they hear stories of social workers. Um, um, child services folks, uh, educators, whatnot, and and to hear the stories that these children bring to them, and the problems that that you're asked to help to resolve or to to work through, help them work through. Does that weigh on you mentally? Because that's I know where I'm sitting. I, I, whenever I hear stories like that, um, not not uh, you know when you see difficulty in a child's life, do you? How do you not take that home with you? How do you? Well, you know, I do. Um, I, I, I can't sit here and say that this doesn't have an effect on me. And some days I go home and I'm very, very low. And, you know, one of the things that my wife does is she helps me to continue. And and she helps me to um, to go back. You know, and one of the things that I use personally that helps motivate me to do what I do is I, instead of exiting Barry on 35, I go down to Rosedale and I turn right on Rosedale and I drive through an area where guys are selling drugs and guys who are hanging out and doing negative things. And I look at them and I think, wow, you know, that's why I'm here to keep these guys from doing those negative things, you know, and I'm a firm believer that an ounce of prevention beats a pound of cure every time. So, um, you know, obviously it costs money Mm -hmm. to to run a place like this. Um, You, uh, a part of your, a very important part of your job is to go out and and raise that money. Yes. Um, uh, You know, what what does it take to operate a place like this? Um, You know, our our budget is like... um, um, 1.5 1.5 million okay. a, a year and it and it take and it costs um about 26,000 for a, a boy to be in this program and the cost for a single mom to have her son in this program is a whopping $20 a year $10 a semester wow and we're not here to make money we're here to make men but yeah. we understand that that it's going to it's going to it's going to cost yeah and, and and you you have a choice to pay now or pay later. Pay later, that's yeah. It, it, you're gonna pay. Yeah. And so you know we, we believe that um, why not invest in the life of these boys when they can be directed and diverted and the trajectory of their life can be elevated instead of divesting when they're in prison. Mm-hmm. You know because you you're gonna pay for yeah, it. Yeah, there's no doubt. So why not? help them not go to prison. And, and how can people who are listening to this, to this podcast, where can they go to, to donate? Um, they they, they, they can go to um, hopefarm.org, hope, hopefarmfw.org. 
org, and and we have um, our, our website is there, and we have a, a a little section there that we call I Give Here, and all you do is touch that, and then you can send your donation to Hope Farm, or you know what, you can um, look up the number at www.hopefarmfw.org, and you can call, you can come and volunteer. Yeah. There's a lot of things that you could do. If you don't have the money, you have time. So yeah. it's just incredible. You can donate huh? in, in, in any number of ways. Yes. Yeah, you can give. Yes. And you know one thing I learned that you can't be God-given. No. <laughs> it just ain't, <laughs> ain't going to happen. Yes. Yeah. So, Gary, the work you're doing here is amazing. It's, it's, uh, it's extremely inspiring. And, uh, you know, I like what you said. You're not about making money. You're about making men. And, you know, the uh, hope isn't just about hope. It's about helping other people excel. It's an acronym for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the work you're doing here is, is uh, I don't have the words to describe, but I think it's, it's so important in our communities and, and really appreciate you having us here today. Well, this has I, been I, great. I, I, I completely agree. I'll add one thing. Um, for our listeners, that there's a video on on the website that that I mean I think really captures yes um, what it is that they're uh, trying to accomplish here, and just to see some of those young men interact with Gary and others here on staff. I mean it's 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 very touching um, and it's very powerful. Thank so you. in addition to hopefully giving money to Hope Farms, if if anything, I, I hope that people in our listening audience check out the website and see that, and and I think that. That really will drive home right. what it is that you're trying to do here. Right. You know, um, we, we, we feel that, you know, we're doing some things that a lot of people can't do. And so if you can't do it, support it. Yes. Yeah. So, again, Hope Farm is a leadership program guiding at-risk boys to become Christ-centered men of integrity. The focus is on spirit, mind, and body. And Gary, what you and Noble are doing here, uh, again, thank you so much for doing it. Yes, and thank you, and thank you for hosting us over here at Hope Farm. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you for coming to the hood. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be here. Absolutely. Right.